Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear, your host. So there was a very interesting uh, decision that came out of uh, one of the federal circuits in actually in Oklahoma City. And this is another in a series of cases that have been brought having to do with the federal laws that uh, make it so certain classes of people, certain categories of people, uh, cannot lawfully possess a firearm. And as you probably know, uh, we have the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, which um, is a matter of some debate. But the general trend that's been going on in courts is to recognize the what's been termed as the longstanding historical tradition um, of having that right be uninfringed. And it's always been a bit of a uh, questionable practice when the federal government, on top of, you know, that constitutional right that applies to everyone, adds these exceptions to the rule. Um, and there's a long list of them. But this case that uh, just recently came out in um, Oklahoma a federal judge ruled that the federal law prohibiting people who use marijuana from owning firearms is unconstitutional. And um, as I said, this is one in a series of cases that have been addressing these various federal uh, law, the various federal exceptions to um, the general right to possess firearm. Now, I covered this in the show in the past with uh, other cases where this same issue has been brought up. And the thing that's interesting about this is that there really hasn't been a case that deals with this uh, marijuana thing. Now, what the law says is that um, it's unlawful for users or addicts of controlled, unlawful users or addicts of controlled substances to possess firearms. And I've always thought that was very vague because you know, look at the words, unlawful, okay, in some way against the law, but a user or addict of a controlled substance could really mean a whole lot of things. So a user, and it doesn't say when, by the way, either. It doesn't say current or past or any of that. So what happens is that it tends to happen in cases where somebody's already in trouble for something else, and the feds investigating a case where they find that a person's in possession of a firearm really goes down this list of things uh, under this federal law that could apply. And it ends up being a situation where they find out, oh, hey, this person smoked marijuana a while ago or was in possession of marijuana and was therefore presumed to be a user of marijuana. And so we got a vagueness issue for beginning, for starters. But also there is the fact that um, this is extremely vague in the sense that it's hard to say what they're even talking about in general, right? So uh, what happened was the lawyers for this person argued that their client's Second Amendment rights were being violated. This fellow, his name is Jared Harrison. He had been charged after being arrested by police in Lawton, Oklahoma, following a traffic stop. The police found a loaded revolver as well as marijuana. He told uh, police he had been on his way to work at a medical marijuana dispensary, but he did not have 
a state-issued medical marijuana card. His lawyers argued the portion of the federal firearms law focused on drug users or addicts was not consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation, echoing what the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled last year in a case known as New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And that case set new standards for interpreting the Second Amendment. Um, the federal prosecutors argued what they normally do, which is that the law focusing on drug users is consistent with the a different historical tradition in America of disarming presumptively risky persons, namely felons, the mentally ill, and the intoxicated. <laughs> That's kind of weird. Um, the intoxicated. So, so where does that tradition come from? That's kind of weird because uh, that's not necessarily um, again something that is a standard that can be easily or or probably even rationally enforced in any way but uh, that being said that's been the standard position that the federal government takes in these types of situations and they're, they're required to I mean you know uh, I know I've talked about this before but when you look at the um, separation of powers and the different functions of our different branches of government, the, the prosecutorial agency, in this case the U.S. Attorney's Office, on behalf of the Department of Justice, is there to see that the laws that have been created by the legislature are enforced. They don't make the laws. And you hear this all the time in court, like, Judge, we don't make the laws, we just enforce them. And there is some truth to that, that when... Congress, uh, you know, our legislative powers um, through elected officials as representatives create a law and it becomes law. It is the law of the land. And the process by which that happens has its own layers of supposed protection against um, being frivolous or <clears throat> an abuse of other rights by virtue of the fact that it's been presumably thoroughly vetted through the process and that when people vote to, meaning the legislators vote to enact such a bill, that it's consistent with the will of the voting public. So when the federal prosecutors come in and say, this is the law, this is what Congress intended, this is what the bill is supposed to do, they're really required to make that argument. It's they can't go in and say, "Yeah, we're we think that was a bad idea," or, um, you know, let's disregard what the legislature had in mind. So when this issue comes up, you know, I, sometimes when I'm making such an argument uh, against the constitutionality of a law, I can almost feel the pain that the other side. Uh, is experiencing when they realize that a law is probably not very well drafted or not very well thought out or that they had something else in mind when this actually got passed. But to get up there and say that there is a long history of disarming people who are intoxicated um, is really very much a stretch. And that's really part of why there's this emphasis on the unlawful users of controlled substances. They're tying it to that someone who is apparently intoxicated. Now, interestingly, if that's something that you want to hang your hat on, what about people that are lawful users of controlled substances that are also intoxicated by use of those substances at times, not at all times? 
but let's say pain medication that's legitimately and actually um, prescribed. And this gets into another area of state law regulation, because we do have laws about possessing a firearm while intoxicated um, by anything. So believe it or not, it's presumably against the law uh, to be, you know, under the influence of anything and to also at that time be in possession of a firearm. Um, which begs the question, does that mean that if you own or possess a firearm, are you forever prohibited from becoming impaired by any substance? Well, it's again, that's a gray area in the law, and it's kind of nonsensical when you think about it that way. But, you know, the feds come in and say, yes, that's one of our one of our goals is to make sure that these people, risky persons, whoever that is, felons, the mentally ill and the intoxicated don't uh, have their hands on weapons. So the thing that always strikes me about this, which is kind of odd, is that if it's if you're basing it on this overall thing about who's risky and who's not, and we've already talked many times in the past about how someone who is a quote-unquote felon for any number of reasons is therefore risky is something that makes no sense at all. And the, uh, the, the history behind why we have these laws that make it so a felon, again, for whatever reason, is per se risky and therefore shouldn't have a firearm, is, again, very, very vaguely based. There are challenges that are cropping up all over the country that deal with nonviolent felonies, nonviolent, um, you know, sometimes they're financial situations. Sometimes it's not even based on an intentional act. It can be based on, you know, negligence or recklessness or something like that, that, that bears no relationship whatsoever on a person's ability to possess firearms. So as I predicted, we're going to see this issue come to a head pretty soon. And uh, all of these um, aspects will be addressed in the higher courts. Well, it's time for a break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. So more about this case that's coming out of Oklahoma, where a federal judge has ruled that the federal law prohibiting people who use marijuana from opening from owning firearms is unconstitutional. As we were saying before the break, um, this is one of a large number of categories that deal with um, various federal provisions that seek to take away that right to possess a firearm. Um, there was another case in Texas in September of last year where the court had ruled that the firearm law that bans those under felony indictment from buying guns is unconstitutional. And in that case, um, the same sort of language that was in the Bruin case that we referenced before, uh, he noted that there's very little evidence that the ban relating to being under indictment aligns with this nation's historical traditions. So <laughs> it's funny that both sides end up arguing about historical traditions. The defendant in that case, in this Oklahoma case, in the New York case, all argued that there is no you know, long-standing tradition to uh, take firearms away from people. Rather, there is a long-standing tradition 
that being the Second Amendment, which is a pretty long-standing tradition, that uh, guarantees that right. So I find it interesting that it's taken so many years for these issues to find their way um, up to these appellate courts. And a lot of these they might be viewed as test cases, but um, you know, for whatever reason, we just didn't have a whole lot of federal judges that were uh, willing to state that these federal laws are unconstitutional in this broader sense. Usually when a court finds that a law is unconstitutional, it's based on the infringement of a right that is clearly defined with very specific language. And the best example we can give of this is when laws are found to be unconstitutional because they violate the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, those types of things, because they're so specifically laid out. And one reason why we haven't really seen this come up in the Second Amendment context is that, um, you know, there is a caveat right there in the Second Amendment, which kind of confuses the debate and, you know, how absolute is that right to possess a firearm? And it's been held for many, many years, you know, you know, a lot of years, matter of fact, that that's a right that exists but um, can be taken away for various reasons because of that fact that it's not as absolute as other inalienable rights, right? So we'll see what happens here, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the comments here, the mere use of marijuana carries none of the characteristics of the nation's history and tradition of firearms regulation. The judge had stated that marijuana can be bought legally at more than 2,000 storefronts in the state of Oklahoma. So there's another layer to this, and that is that most states, not Wisconsin, but most states now have some form of legalized marijuana. As you know, we are an island in the middle of a, a sea of states that surround Wisconsin where cannabis um, that contains tetrahydrocannabinols, uh, Delta 9, THC in particular, uh, can be legally bought, legally consumed, and so on. So, you know, we all knew that this was going to be something that the federal government's going to have to deal with at some point. And going on decades now, the federal government has, again, as I mentioned before, the federal laws prohibiting the possession of marijuana still exist, even in those states where it's legal under state law. And for whatever reason, uh, our lawmakers on the federal level have consistently avoided, dodged, refused to actually pass any legislation that affects the, or addresses that issue. And now it's coming to a point where something is going to have to happen because this is a conflict that just can't... The way that it's being dealt with by various administrations um, since, you know, the advent, I guess, of uh, marijuana legalization throughout the country has built momentum has been to lower the priority of enforcement um, for many of those cases. So in other words, yes, those laws are there, but our administration's policy is to 
place it on a lower enforcement uh, spectrum, you know, a lower priority when it comes to enforcing these types of things. There's really an end run and a cop out, <laughs> right? So it, we're, we're relying on the executive branch to have some discretion there as to which laws are important and which ones aren't as important, which that's not a good law if it's subject to that type of interpretation. I mean, again, remember, separation of powers. The prosecution is obligated to enforce laws. So if it's a law that a lot of people disagree with and is an unpopular one, well, the remedy for that is the law should be changed through the elected representatives that represent the people. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why um, this doesn't necessarily gain any traction on the legislative level. Um, a lot of which has to do with our current state of um, polarization of political issues in our government. And, you know, the marijuana legalization issue has become sort of a, a uh, main talking point for Democrats, but it's also a main topic point, uh, talking point for Republicans to say, to kind of repeat the old um, mantra that marijuana is dangerous and it leads to uh, violent crime and so on and so forth. And in spite of the fact that that's a view that has dramatically changed over the last recent years, um, nothing really of significance is being done in, um, in Congress or in the Senate regarding any of this. Uh, now, there's a lot of other stuff going on, of course, and maybe it's something that isn't a big priority, but by failing to address this, in a timely manner, what we're doing is we're wasting law enforcement resources that could be far better spent on issues that um, need to remain uh, vigilantly, you know, addressed. And that's one problem. Another is that we're going to see more and more of this type of litigation where things are challenged, and then that consumes court time and you know, again, the jo this is the job of the legislatures. Well, the the actual lawmakers should be taking this issue more seriously. And if there could be what is probably an inevitable conclusion, a logical conclusion, that this is one example of a law that makes no sense in the context of um, legal use of marijuana in various states. Um, it's just creating more and more litigation, more and more um, bogging down the court systems with an issue that, you know, really could be very carefully scrutinized and, and addressed at, at its foundation level. But that takes guts. And sometimes that doesn't exist <laughs> in a political environment because of, again, the this... Um, partisan division that we seem to have in our country that is not getting any better, right? So we'll see because um, this is the kind of thing that this ruling, it is in a U.S. district court, which means it's not binding anywhere except on that particular case. It didn't come from a court of appeals. It came from a judge in the uh, Western District of Oklahoma. So it's only, it's not precedent. It's not something that can be cited by other courts, by other systems, etc. 
So naturally, when a decision like this comes out and it's contrary to what the government lawyers argued, there will be an appeal. I mean, it's almost certain. And so then we see that whole process occur and that'll take who knows how many years <laughs> to wind its way up through the system and maybe reach the United States Supreme Court. I guess we'll have to see. Well, we're coming up on time for another break, and we'll be right back after some messages from our sponsors. Hey, I just wanted to chime in briefly on um, an interesting thing. At least it's interesting to uh, lawyers that practice in federal court. And there's a movement afoot to change the rules of filing. And uh, just a little bit of history here. I don't know if this seems boring to you, but it's uh, fascinating to me because it's something that I deal with all the time. But we're talking about filing deadlines and how they have worked in the past and then how things sort of changed when we have uh, newer uh, technology that exists. So for years and years and years and years, when you had a filing deadline, let's say it's you know Friday, and that's the day that you're um, appellate filing or your motion or whatever it is has to be filed with the clerk's office. In the old days, it would actually have to arrive there physically um, by 5 p.m. when the clerk's office for that particular court closes. And so, you know, back when you used to have to actually mail things or hand deliver things, boy, I can remember, you know, if you had a deadline that's creeping up on you and you had to plan ahead. I mean, you're anticipating the mail time. You're anticipating when everything has to be in a certain number of copies that are prepared and uh, served on the other side and all these other things. So you would be, you know, at least ahead enough of the game to the point where you would meet those deadlines, because if you fail to meet it, then you're late. Right. And that used to be, you know, 5 p.m. when the clock strikes five, 501 is too late. Um, but. As courts all over the country, including the federal courts, uh, started both um, initially permitting people to file electronically, but then after that, uh, requiring that people file things electronically, which is a good thing, right? We say paper, <laughs> the, the whole, you know, relying on the U.S. mail isn't uh, as critical and physically dropping off a big stack of briefs, uh, you know, like driving to the court to do that, then becomes unnecessary. But because of the fact that the deadline, if it was Friday, can be met, presumably, at any time prior to midnight, or 12.01 a.m., um, the trend was that the deadline was treated as midnight rather than 5 p.m. So what that has done, and I can just tell you from personal experience here, it makes it so you don't tend to meet that deadline at five because, you know, on a Friday evening or whatever day of the week it is, you've got those extra few hours to finish up what you're working on and you can hit, you know, your, you can click your button and file it um, at that moment. And as long as it's before midnight, you're fine. So, for some people, they viewed this as a, a welcome uh, trend in the sense that it gives you essentially, you know, a few more hours, several more hours in the day. But what they've noticed over the years is a, 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 a creeping trend where more and more filings are coming in at or before midnight on the deadline. 
And, you know, I would think that the fact that that's something that they're witnessing, uh, you know, is something that it's kind of up to the individual lawyer if they um, need those extra few hours and want to utilize them. Um, as opposed to how we used to do things. And if, in fact, you can gain some needed time by doing so, well, all the better, because time is important, right? But there's been a concern that if more and more lawyers are waiting until this midnight deadline instead of the 5 p.m. deadline, that there's an improper work-life balance that's being promoted, or allowed, I guess, if you say that. So in the interest of not having lawyers work late until midnight, they're talking about kind of nationwide changing the rules so that it would go back to the 5 p.m. rule. As if to say, we don't trust lawyers to manage their own time, so we're going to do it for them, (laughs) is one way of looking at it. Now, I do remember back when you had to do more planning and you had to be ahead of the thing, you know, in order to get things there. Practicing law was a different kind of thing. When we used to actually use writing instruments on pieces of paper and when, when you typed something, you know, and you had to plan ahead so that it would be properly printed, formatted, all that other stuff. Um, had to make sure your copier had enough paper and toner and all that stuff. So it, it kind of, just because of the way things worked, um, the practice of law was something that required a bit more planning and foresight than what it does now. And I can tell you that the process of generating a, let's say, a court of appeals brief, which is very time intensive and requires multiple revisions and hopefully you know, a large number of people, like including paralegals, administrative staff, other lawyers, people contributing to this kind of big project where there's a lot of eyes on it and a lot of people can uh, proofread it, that kind of thing. When you knew that it had to be in the mail, you know, a couple days before the deadline, you'd plan this out and you'd very carefully go through and you'd make revisions and sometimes waste a lot of paper because you'd find something that you have the correct, you know, but because it's stretched out over that period of time, you, you, you plan accordingly. So what happens is by the ability to file things electronically, and maybe it's just human nature, I don't know, but the trend has been to, you know, it's less careful drafting of documents. So we see a lot of examples of people that are filing things that are, that there hasn't been as much care put into the what the final version, uh, the electronic version is. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that when uh, you have these, who's working on it at 10 p.m. trying to meet a midnight deadline? Well, it's going to be one person, probably, right? Because if your administrative staff and your paralegals all went home at 5 p.m. and who's who's burning the midnight oil? It's usually just the lawyer who's responsible for filing it. It doesn't have that same level of input from people or participation from other people. So I think that's something that, and the courts have noted that, that you know the overall quality of um, care that goes into pre- preparing something and filing something like that has significantly declined. So I, I personally think it's a good thing to if we go back to this five o'clock deadline. So if you didn't know this already, uh, 
you know, the life of a litigating lawyer is extremely chaotic and no, no lawyer gets to go home at five and say, well, I'm done for the day practically ever. Um, it's just the way life is, you know, um, the life I've been living for 30 years now, (laughs) but, um, that's where time management skills and the challenges of dealing with many different, uh, needs that are being met across the board have to be balanced and hopefully, you know, building the resources within a particular organization help in that process. But so maybe if, uh, you know, there's some sort of imposition of a work-life balance, as it were, could occur, maybe that's not a bad thing. I don't know. But I want to jump into, um, before we're coming up on our break pretty soon here, um, the Mark Jensen case that um, wound its way through the system. It's, this is a case that started way back in 1998. And um, it was a very significant case that, that uh, did result in Mark Jensen's conviction. But then uh, a number of appeals and things happened, uh, a lot of which focused on the admissibility of this um, letter, a letter written by um, Julie Jensen, the person who died. And the thing that was controversial about it is that it, there were doubts about, or some question about whether she actually authored it. And then the more significant issue was how do you cross-examine a letter that was written by somebody who isn't there anymore? And just a fascinating concept because there are so many legal in principles that overlap and um, kind of pull and tug at if the ultimate goal is to have a fair trial, but also if there's something that is deemed to be highly relevant to the case, but not subject to normal cross-examination or normal challenges that we rely on to keep the system from convicting innocent persons, then how do we balance those things? And really, it's a it, it, all the different considerations and factors that come in, into play here are amazing. So we'll talk more detail about that when we come back after this break. Welcome back. So we're talking about the Mark Jensen case. And in case you don't know, um, he was just convicted again um, after the second trial, which just occurred in February of this year, just a little bit ago. So let me tell you a little bit about background of the case and um, why this was such a um, complicated matter. So uh, there was, uh, at the first trial, there was uh, admission into evidence a, a letter that was written by Julie Jensen prior to her death, expressing suspicion of her husband's intentions. Uh, It came out that she was investigating her husband by checking his planner. She photographed a note, documented her suspicions about what was going on, and gave the letter to a neighbor with instructions to hand it to the police if anything should happen to her. So she wrote, and this this always struck me as weird, that she wrote, I will never commit suicide, and if I die, the police should consider my husband as a suspect. She said, I pray that I'm wrong and nothing happens, but I am suspicious 
of Mark's behaviors and fear for my early demise. Now, I followed this case when it was happening and as it wound its way through the uh, appellate system. And basically, there was evidence that was presented, by the way, by the uh, prosecution that contended all along that Mark Jensen poisoned his wife with ethylene glycol, antifreeze, and then suffocated her when she was barely breathing uh, back in 1998. Um, There was a counter to that and it kind of made sense as I was going through all this and following this case but um, the defense argued that Julie was a depressed woman who killed herself and framed her husband Um, there was evidence that she had seen a therapist at least three times for depression and was aware of her husband's uh, affair that he was having with a co-worker again that was um, not disputed There was, however, evidence that was introduced showing that Mark Jensen had discussed poisoning his wife with co-workers and with a jailhouse snitch, as well as uh, searching the internet for information related to poison. The prosecution contended that Jensen remained angry over his wife's brief affair in 1991 with a co-worker. And the letters used by the prosecutors was controversial because such evidence had been blocked by the court for years by strict hearsay rules based on criminal defendants' right to confront their accusers under the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. But when the Wisconsin Supreme Court, citing a a very important case called Crawford v. Washington, held the use of Julie Jensen's letter and statements, could be admitted by the forfeiture of wrongdoing doctrine, um, under which a defendant waives his right to confront a witness if he caused the witness to be absent. So... I remember when that case came out, and so let's kind of lay lay the groundwork here for what the issue is. Um, under Crawford versus Washington, that's a case that dealt with, in that case, the admission of a laboratory report um, for some suspected contraband substance. And there had been a process whereby, in the state of Washington, their crime lab produced these sort of summary result forms. And they would crank out these results, and it would basically say, yep, that substance is cocaine, or yep, that substance is marijuana, or whatever. And so this is a a form of testimony that's in the form of a written report. And this has been a practice that had been going on for years and years and years, and nobody really um, had a, a challenge that caught the attention of the appellate courts with any traction until this Crawford case came out. And what the Supreme Court did is they looked at the fact that even though this had been a long-standing practice, and even though for years and years these reports would come out, they'd be provided to the defense, they'd be offered and admitted in trial as proof of the scientific testing, the prosecutors weren't calling the actual person who drafted these reports. Under the theory that these are, um, there's a presumption of regularity, there's a presumption of reliability, that these are scientists, and that um, when they produce a report, there's no there's no testimonial aspect of this in the sense that they're simply reporting what the science says and what the equipment did, and, and that's kind of a logical argument that like you know if the testimony would be, yeah, we ran the test and this was the result. Thank you very much. But as we all know, anything that is 
a piece of paper that would be um, evidence against somebody and where the person who wrote that report isn't uh, testifying at the trial, yeah, that's called hearsay. <laughs> and if it's offered for the truth of the matter asserted, which it clearly was, you have to go back to the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment says you have the right to confront anyone who would testify against you. Can't just be some, you know, a letter to the the jury or a letter to the judge, or you know, because the person has to be there. Such things, at least in the Crawford case, that were important were, you know, okay, well, what was the actual testing process? How were controls used? How did you calibrate the machinery? Were there any errors in the process? What are all the steps that led to the production of this piece of paper that says what the testing process was? And the Supreme Court held that, well, that's, yeah, you can't just bypass all of that by saying you do it all the time. It's still hearsay, and you still have to present that information. It's part of a fair trial. It's part of the confrontation process. So flash forward to uh, the Jensen appeal. We have to add another layer here, and that is that this forfeiture by wrongdoing statute, no, it's not a statute. It's a case law-derived principle. And it basically holds that if someone can't come and testify at trial because the defendant made it so that person can't be there, and I, I'm wording it that way because it can apply in a lot of different situations. Traditionally, um, when this was first uh, finding its way into the case law, it had to do with situations where there was witness intimidation or threats uh, not to show up, or some kind of obstruction of the process. I mean, you can imagine some kind of witness tampering situation where someone's going to come in and testify, There's they wrote out a statement, and then there's evidence that the prosecution can show that the defendant uh, did something to make it so the person doesn't want to show up, or avoids service of process out of fear, Right. So this is kind of a cobbled together principle in the law that says, well, a defendant should not have that ability to shut down the process by threatening a witness or discouraging them from appearing and then derive the benefit of then being able to say that this is hearsay. Um, in other words, too much risk that someone could manipulate the system is what where this came from. Well, then it started to be applied to cases where the person was accused of, I mean, the very thing that they're accused of is the same reason why the prosecution says that person's unavailable. Put another way, if Mark Jensen killed his wife, that's why she's unavailable, and therefore, this should be an exception to the hearsay rule. Now, the problem with that is that before you know um, at least from a legal perspective, whether it was Mark Jensen that rendered his wife unavailable, you'd have to know whether he killed her first. But that's what he's on trial for. So it, you almost have to assume going into this that if it's true that he killed her, which, by the way, is what they're trying to prove and hasn't been proven yet, if that's the theory, can they then say, well, this is... It's the defendant that made this person unable to testify by killing her, right? So that's the, that's the issue. The problem is, and this is what has always fascinated me about this, is that, you know, the trial is all about whether he did or didn't 
kill her. And if they're using evidence to say that he did, based on the fact that she's unavailable because he killed her, you know, you, you have trouble identifying which is the cart and which is the horse and which are you putting first. Um, and by the way, this case is also fascinating in the sense that it kind of made sense to me that it's entirely possible that if somebody was very vindictive and really wanted to make trouble uh, for their husband after discovering an affair had occurred, may very well have written this type of note and may very well have handed it to a neighbor uh, just, and then killed herself. It's entirely possible. So, so by having this come in without the ability to really explore what the motivations behind it were, you know, the absent witness here, um, it really borders on something that um, the evidence is just too specific as it relates to matching perfectly the, the theory of prosecution. So another trial happened. It took that long for it to occur, but... Once again, Mark Jensen convicted of murdering his wife, and we'll see what happens next. All right, it's all the time we have. Hope you've enjoyed listening to Legal Defense. You can do so again next weekend, as you can every Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHPL. This is Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.